0: Social media in review, the FCC to review Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But what does that mean? Matt Feeney from the Cato Institute is here to help. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk today. Welcome back, listeners. Always great being here with you. Today, we're talking about social media, free speech, and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So a lot of nuance there, but uh, thankfully, we have a wonderful guest expert to walk us through, Matthew Feeney. Today, he joins us. He's the director of the Cato Institute's Project on Emerging Technologies. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Matthew, uh, the FCC has announced that the Department of Commerce has petitioned it to review Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so they're doing this with the idea that they might clarify some of the ambiguities. And so my understanding is that this is a bipartisan effort and that the general counsel for the FCC determined already that the FCC does, in fact, have the authority to engage in a little bit of rulemaking here to clarify some of those question marks. And so, Obviously, social media has been a lot in the news. It's been, uh, you know, I guess, uh, debated over uh, in the terms of political exchange. And so, you know, in 2016, the presidential election, the Democrat Party claimed that there may have been some Russian interference that turned the election in in a direction they didn't want to go. And of course, fast forward to 2020, the Republican Party is claiming that selective editorial processes within the social media platforms are impacting their election prospects. And so, Social media is in review. And, uh, you know, you wrote a wonderful article on this. Uh, It was featured on the Cato Institute's website. It was titled, Accusations of Social Media Election Interference Put Online Speech at Risk. And so I wanted to open up with this question for you, Matthew. You know, Section 230, we've done some shows on this before, and this is basically essential if we're going to have Platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram—you wouldn't have these kind of platforms unless they had some type of protection because they don't control all the content all their users submit. So, can you walk us through the purpose, real quick, uh, what Section Two Hundred and Thirty does, and then maybe tell us how it protects social media when it finally does decide to do some editing of its content from its users?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I would say to sum it up that that Section Two Hundred and Thirty. Uh, was written to codify to to make sure that everyone on the internet, or and especially those running websites, knew who was responsible uh, for the content that we today or contribute to and enjoy. A big part of the internet is submitting your own content, whether that's comments on Facebooks or photos to Instagram or reviews on Yelp. And in the early 90s, there were a couple of court cases that uh, were throwing some spanners in the mix, shall we say, about who was actually liable for the content that people were uploading. And and Section 230 uh, was written by a bipartisan group of lawmakers to Uh, to state that uh, you are responsible for the content that you upload, say, to Twitter or Facebook, but Facebook and Twitter, for the most part, is not. And and what that allows is for private companies like social media platforms to set their own rules about what kind of content they want to allow and disallow, and means that uh, they don't have to worry about a plethora of lawsuits coming their way if someone uploads uh, a tweet, for example, that's libelous. And, and I, I try to uh, explain Section 230 to people by saying that that at the core of it is personal responsibility, that if, if you contribute content or upload content, you're responsible for that. And for the most part, where you uploaded it is not. There are, few exceptions, but that's basically the, the crux of Section 230.
0: And I think one of the distinctions that some people get mixed up, conflate, especially if they don't have a legal background, is that the First Amendment does not protect you from any type of censorship or editorial process that one of those social media platforms would uh, deploy to try to keep you know their platform clean of whatever undesired content that there is, Correct. That's right. So the First Amendment is a restraint on government, not private actors, And that's very
1: important because, especially when you consider that we're fortunate enough in the United States to enjoy, I would argue, a degree of freedom of speech that's unparalleled anywhere in the world. Uh, Other countries, for example, might have uh, hate speech laws or bans on, say, denying the Holocaust. But in in the United States, uh, there's a a huge amount of content that is legal. And I think that's a benefit. Um, That's a good thing for a a liberal society. However, it's also understandable that just because speech is legal that uh, many people might not want to be associated with it. So, for example, uh, a social media site might take steps to say, well, it is legal to publish videos of animals being crushed to death or to show pornography or to um, have swastika symbols everywhere. But Because we're a private company, uh, we feel like we'll actually restrict that kind of content and we will cater to our own own values. And while uh, I think this conversation obviously happens many times in the context of big social media companies, we should remember that Section 230 applies to websites big and small and there are websites that do host a lot of awful but legal content uh where you can find this sort of thing but if, if you are running a little blog and that has a comment section um, you're also enjoying the kind of protection section 230 outlines but the, the the fact is that just because there's a lot of speech that is legal uh, doesn't mean that everyone wants to associate with it and and section 230 a crucial part of it in the text mentions that websites are free to moderate content however they see fit, even if that speech is constitutionally protected. Uh, So yes, it's very important, I think, in this debate to remember that the First Amendment uh, is restriction on government.
0: Well, And so some of those uh, restrictive policies that some of the social media platforms uh, might be deploying has become somewhat of a hot button issue, of course, during a, a big political cycle that we find ourselves in today. And so recently, and I just wanted to, I'm, I'm building towards uh, some of these proposed possible renovations, if you will, to Section 230. But, uh, you know, recently there was a, a New York Times article about uh, some leaked, illegally leaked tax documentation from President Trump. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, there were, was the New York Post published an article about Hunter Biden, of course, the son of presidential uh, candidate Joe Biden, his son, a uh, laptop, you know, maybe some incriminating photos and some communications there. But, you know, these these stories were leaked um, or put out and, uh, you know, the political parties were worried about them. and so. But they were treated a little differently by the social media platforms. And so I think with this one, and I want to get into a follow-up on this one, it fell on kind of a technicality between this. So can you walk us through how Twitter navigates that just and the idea here is, I'm, I'm, we're building towards some of the renovations towards Section 230.
1: Right. Yeah, th- those are very good real case situations to talk through. As many listeners will know, uh, Twitter blocked access to the New York Post story that you uh, that you mentioned, and of course, many uh, conservatives alleged that this kind of blocking was a symptom of systemic anti-conservative bias in Silicon Valley. And Twitter cited its policy that um, limits access to hacked personal private information. Now, many people were, were quick to point out, well, what about the New York Times tax story um, related to Trump? Twitter didn't block any of those links. And the difference between the two is that the the New York Times story, though, didn't include images, photos of private information such as Donald Trump's email address or phone number. Um, but the New York Post story uh, does actually include that that kind of information. And that was their justification for limiting uh, links of the story. Uh, earlier this year, Twitter cited the the same policy when it limited uh, links to private information related to police officers, for example. Now, I want to, to stress, you you can criticize this policy and you can mention that uh, there might be you know, bias in Silicon Valley and everything. Uh, but to me, I, I, I don't think that raises any important legal question, actually. Uh, many people seem to think that political neutrality or something like that is required by Section 230, but but that is not true. So everyone, I think, should keep in mind that when they're being critical of Twitter here, uh, that there are few, I think, very few uh, feasible legal avenues to address this uh, supposed problem. Uh, This is just a private company trying to associate with content it views consistent with its policies.
0: All right, so just a quick follow up there, and so this comes up because we're, uh, you know, we're in an election cycle here, and so in the last 24 hours, President Trump has had a couple of tweets blocked for disputed content warnings uh, related to the election. Now, this gets into Twitter's civic integrity policy, and so let me just read these tweets really quick. I'm not asking you to weigh in on the uh, on the um, the truthfulness of them, but I just wanted to point this out, just kind of getting towards that renovation of 230. So, just for some context here, so President Trump, this was today, said they are are working hard to make up 500,000 vote advantage in Pennsylvania disappear ASAP. Likewise, Michigan and others. And so this tweet was covered up with this warning that you can click through if you want to from Twitter. It says, some or all of the content shared in this tweet is disputed. It might be misleading about an election or other civic process. And so below that, they've got this link to an article that points in a different direction than the president was uh, you know, expressing his opinion on. So that's one. So he he got blocked a little bit with some censorship here, but let me point out another one. And so I'm building to a question here. So thank you for humoring me, uh, Matt. Matthew, sure, Josh you. Shapiro, he's the uh, he's the district attorney for Pennsylvania, and so he may be involved. If there's going to be a recount in Pennsylvania, he may be involved in this process. And he did this uh, this tweet on uh, October 31st before the election. And so he writes if all the votes are added up in Pennsylvania, Trump is going to lose. That's why he's working overtime to subtract as many votes as possible from this process. And so the reason I bring this up, Matthew, is that I went through and I reviewed Twitter's civic integrity policy, and I don't know how they do it all, but it seems like both of these tweets kind of fly right in there and either one of them, both of them, you know, could have been banned and yet somehow, you know, the president's is banned and maybe not the AG of Pennsylvania. But the reason I bring this up is because just because might be some inconsistency in an internal policy, it doesn't make it illegal to do, correct? That's correct. Uh, And and I I would just add that anyone looking for
1: perfect implementation of a Content moderation policy on on a platform the size of Twitter is asking to be disappointed. Uh, the fact is that content moderation is much more difficult, I think, than than many people appreciate. And your your example is only one of I think many where people can highlight supposed uh, inconsistencies with with the policy. Uh, when, when I've spoken to students about this, I I try to note real examples where the larger social media sites have have struggled to, and I think understandably, to implement their policies. And in fact, sometimes it's not even to do with the piece of content itself, but the kind of context it's in. Uh, At least a few years ago, I saw reporting that suggested that Facebook's treatment of, say, uh, bullying videos depended very heavily on the context. So if someone posted a video of a child being bullied at school and it was making fun of the victim, then it could be taken down. But if a anti-bullying charity put it up, then it would be kept up. Uh, so I think your citing of, of real tweets, I, I think, highlights how difficult that can be at scale
0: quick follow-up before we get to the Section 230 uh, question there. And so I thought you uh, did a really good job highlighting this in, in your article for Cato. And so you were talking about allegations of election interference and you know the collision that could possibly have with private actors. And you recommended treading lightly there because it could impact a lot of businesses, but it could be really a sticking point for you know if you're overly zealous with these allegations, how are you ever going to engage in business? So can you just share that with everybody? I think that kind of helps provide some context text, you know, to some of these disputed issues that we read about online.
1: Sure. The the article that you cited is one that I wrote in the wake of the New York Post uh, story that we've already discussed. And something that caught my eye was that many conservative activists were describing Twitter's behavior here as election interference. I, I thought that was quite inappropriate. And, and the reason is because I actually think that uh, interference in elections is a serious allegation um, and a, a problem that that we should treat seriously. And I think once you get into a world where content moderation decisions or the freedom of association is considered the same as uh, what I think most people think of when they think of election interference, and I think the, the word or the phrase at least has less useful meaning, and and that's important.
0: Uh,
1: and part of the issue here, though, I, I think is we should consider some of the responses to the supposed problem here, which is if, if you think that there's political bias on on a platform as large as uh, Twitter or Facebook, then you might think, well, there should be mandated viewpoint neutrality, or uh, maybe the FTC should be involved, or maybe the FCC should be involved. And I worry about these kind of proposals, not just from a uh, freedom of association point of view, but also from an anti-competitive point of view. Uh, I think it's no surprise that at a recent uh, Senate hearing, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, expressed openness to amending Section 230. But this is, I think, classic regulatory capture where uh, many businesses will oppose regulations or changes to laws up until the point they view those changes as inevitable, and then they will get their lobbyists to uh, make sure that the law uh, favors them. Uh, The fact is that I, I want there to be an internet where those who want to compete with Facebook and Twitter can, but I think that's harder to do with Section 230 reform.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to highlight that because I, I thought you just, you articulated that so well, that slippery slope. So every, for everybody out there that's looking for an answer to try to challenge every unfair action that might be out there, uh, there's a slippery slope uh, and a potential huge consequences for it. So let's get to Section 230 and then we'll close it out. But, uh, you know, with the FCC, you know, what's going on there? What what are they taking a look at specifically?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, well, in, in May, uh, Donald Trump signed an executive order It's a bit of a roundabout way of of doing this, so I I suppose it depends how you want to describe it. But basically, the, the executive order asked for the National Telecommunications Information Administration to ask the the FCC uh, for a proposal on uh, clarifications in Section 230. Uh, And what uh, they were asking the FCC to take a look at are the so-called sword and shield of 230. Uh, The sword is the section of 230 that says you're free to moderate content however you see fit, and uh, the the shield is this liability shield saying uh, websites aren't considered, for the most part, publishers of user-generated content. And what I want to to stress here is that many people think it's pretty inappropriate for the FCC to even have a look at this. Um, I know at the beginning of the the interview, you mentioned that at least one lawyer at the FCC seems to think this is within their remit. But you can actually read um, a comment written by the the authors of Section 230, uh, Representative Ron Wyden, who's now a senator, and former Representative uh, Chris Cox. And what's interesting, I think, in their comment is they mention explicitly that, well, the, the reason why we wrote Section 230 to try and get it outside the remit of these kind of agencies, uh, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. You know, they mentioned in the text of 230, which you can read, it says that it is the policy of the United States to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. And and what I think is important to remember is at the time that section 230 uh, was written, so we're talking 1995-96, there was a proposal in the Senate uh, that would have empowered the FCC to help moderate or write rules for content on the internet, and Section Two Hundred and Thirty was in large part a, an attempt to make sure that didn't come to pass. So I think anyone who um, is applauding what's happening here has to, I think, keep keep in mind that this is exactly the kind of situation that at least the authors of Two Hundred and Thirty were trying to prevent, namely an alphabet soup agency coming in and regulating. Online content. And Section 230, I think, is a valuable piece of legislation. I think because it allows people to engage with content consistent with their values without getting uh, the size and scope of government any larger than it already is.
0: Since Section 230 came out, there's been uh, a few court cases that have provided some additional meaning to it. And I think one of the things that uh, Chairman Ajit Pai and uh, Commissioner Brendan Carr uh, they agree that they sent out a a statement is that they think that Section 230 might be out of alignment with its original intention. And so let me just kind of cite back towards, and I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here. So Section 230A it does talk about some of the intention about uh, liberating content, you know, trying to create a bigger marketplace to exchange ideas. One of the things that specifically mentioned is political discussions. And so to the degree that any online platform, social media, otherwise maybe picks one side over another and perhaps just in theory, you know, reduces that political exchange. Do they lose their Section 230 protection? Is Section 230 out of alignment with that intention?
1: I don't think so. Uh, you can read uh, the the document that I uh, cited earlier, where the authors of two hundred and thirty explain their answer to the question: Is Section two hundred and thirty outdated? And and they seem to think. Um, and I think correctly that many of the concerns that were present uh, at the writing of Section 230 are still with us now. Now, of course, look, the, the internet is very, very different to what it was in 1995 and 96, but there are crucial things that remain the same, namely that people visit the internet to uh, submit their own content, to engage with others, and there are companies that are trying to uh, provide platforms for people to do that. That that fundamental feature of the internet has not changed. And in, in their statement, Congressman, Cox and Wyden do mention that they they view the attitude that Section 230 is outdated as something of an urban legend. Uh, the the fact is that that even if you are upset, say with the political content moderation of Twitter, your political views have a home on the internet. It's just a, a question of whether they have a home on perhaps the most popular. And you know, no one likes to be chucked out of popular house parties. I you know, that's <laughs> I, I suppose understandable. But the fact is, it's not a problem. I think for government. Uh, and and what's interesting is uh, earlier this year, there's actually been a conservative responses where they've set up their own uh social media sites or made alternatives more popular and that i think is um I think a market at work, which is you have parlour, you have Gab, you have venues for speech that Twitter or Facebook might not like. And I think that's fine. Uh, But I don't think it's fair to say that uh, 230 is is not working as intended or is out of alignment. I I think uh, we're fortunate enough to have the two authors of the law are still with us and commentating. Uh, up until this very day, about uh, what they thought when they were writing it and what they think about it today. Um, Now, given that this is a legal podcast, I'm sure there will be people listening who disagree about how much it should matter what the authors thought and what kind of originalist you want to be when it comes to Section 230. Uh, But insofar as you think it matters what the authors of the law state, I think it's fair to say that Section 230 is not out of alignment.
0: All right, last question for you, Matthew. You know, if you're a betting person, you know, what are your predictions for where the FCC will go when it comes to Section 230?
1: Uh, well, you're asking someone who's been wrong about every political prediction over the last <laughs> six years, so I'm, I'm I'm hesitant to make predictions. But I I would say, uh, despite not being a uh, a lawyer with, with any you know, a lawyer of any kind, let alone with expertise in the FCC, I would say that uh, we should wait and see which kind of what kind of administration we have in the new year and. Uh, How all this comes out in in the wash. Um, My instinct is that there are quite a few, I would say, valid legal challenges to the FCC's ability to promulgate the kind of rules that uh, that President Trump seems to be asking for here. But I, I, like I said, I've been wrong about many things in the past, and this could be another one of them. Uh, I would just say that I suppose there's some sort of conclusion that. Any time that you have an agency like this taking a hard look at a piece of legislation as crucial as Section 230, um, I think a healthy dose of skepticism
0: is warranted. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Matthew. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. And we've got a lot of sources for this episode. So we'll go ahead and cite them and you can read all about it for yourself on our website, legaltalknetwork.com. And also thank you to our producer, Molly McDonough and our production team for their hard work, especially during a distracting time. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody.